Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Savannah Lightholt. Savannah is a PhD student at Oregon State University, studying the role of viruses in marine animals, specifically the etiological agents of puffy snout syndrome in captive tuna and mackerels. Savannah got her Bachelor of Science in Conservation Biology and Ecology, a Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Arts, and a minor in Genetics at Montana State University in 2018, and started at Oregon State University in the Vega Thurber Lab in 2019. Savannah is not only passionate about science, but also science education and outreach. She has mentored several undergraduate students and is currently heading a microbiology summer camp for underserved and underrepresented high school students to be held in the summer of 2022. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. And that you thought of me. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I like to start a little bit with people's backgrounds. So what initially got you interested in fisheries and science? It's, it's really funny. All growing up, my dad would take us out fishing pretty frequently and we would go to Hell Creek, which is, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a, a small, I guess, reservoir in Montana off of Fort Peck. And me and my brother, Derek, would get signed up to do these fishing competitions and we would always lose, <laughs> but it was, it was a good time. And that's just something that I remember with my dad. I was never really like into fish. Cause I thought that they were gross and slimy and I'm really girly, <laughs> but as I got older and started doing more science, I noticed that a lot of the science that I was really interested in a lot of really cool conservation genetics work just happened to be in fisheries and aquaculture. So that's why I sort of shifted and thought, Hmm, maybe this is like something that I could do. Mm -hmm. And so it, it just worked out really well that everything sort of fell into place for my PhD program. And I got to work with fish in this really cool, weird disease and tunas mm -hmm. and mackerels. Yeah. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about your path to your current career? Cause you do have a bachelor's of arts and liberal arts as well as the minor. So how, how did you go from a more of an arts degree to the science degree? Yeah. So I think everybody is confused in undergrad. Nobody knows what you really want to okay. do. And I mean, I applaud those people who go in and say like, I'm going to be a doctor and they do it the whole way through. I was not like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I bumped around a lot and I, I kept on going back and forth between wanting to be an educator and wanting to be a scientist. And so kind of that is where the liberal arts fits in because I was mm -hmm. taking a lot of these other classes, learning about psychology, sociology, economics, but I wanted to find a way to merge my, my passions, I guess. And I sort of came to the conclusion that the best way to do that was to become a professor and advocate for people who come from underserved or underrepresented backgrounds. I'm Hispanic. And so traditionally speaking, we are underrepresented in many scientific fields. Mm -hmm. In, in my field, particularly in marine science, uh, Hispanics only account for like 3% of the total doctoral degrees awarded each year. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of mind blowing. But I think, I mean, to kind of discuss my path on how I got to grad school, I started out in anthropology and then switched to organismal biology and then switched to conservation biology, which I ended up sticking with. 
And along the way, I fell in love with genetics and science communication. And I got really lucky. And I was talking to one of my professors and I was like, will you please write me a letter of recommendation? I know you barely know me, but nobody knows me and I'm never going to get an internship if somebody (laughs) doesn't like stick their neck out. And so he did. And I ended up going to this internship program at the Duke Marine Station in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I went with the intent to do conservation genetic research on a population of flounders there. But instead, I got to work with coral reef samples, which was kind of out of left field. And he didn't know what he was doing. And I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> it was a great time. We figured it out. But because of that, I was basically nominated to participate in the scientific conference in Portland that following February. Mm -hmm. And I was getting all into coral reef science, thinking I was going to do corals, go in like full send on that. And when I got to the conference, it just so happened that my advisor was promoting her new documentary called Saving Atlantis. So I saw Becky and I got to hear her talk Mm -hmm. about corals. I was like, that's, that's the lady. That's the one that I want to go with. And it worked out where she was taking on students, not the year that I was graduating, but the following year. Mm-hmm. And I already wanted to take a gap year. So that worked out well. But when I got to her lab, I was kind of like backing off of this coral idea. I was like, wow, I don't know. Corals was kind of just like thrown on me. And I don't really feel like I was as passionate about it as like other people in the lab. Mm-hmm. And during our first meeting that I had with Becky, she's like, I have two projects. One of them's like our traditional coral project. This other one, it's kind of weird. <laughs> she's like, we're working with Monterey Bay Aquarium. And I have a friend there and they're working on this weird tissue degenerative disease in fish. We don't have any students who are interested. Would you be interested? And I was like, yes, pick me. (laughs) I am your girl. So that's a very long winded way of saying how I got where I am. But yeah, I think it's important. Like if anybody takes anything away from like hearing me just ramble on is that your path to graduate school is not linear. It's just like ping ponging around, bouncing off of walls until something sticks. Yeah, absolutely. Were you pretty sure after undergrad that you wanted to go into marine biology or would you have gone with whatever type of science? I have always really been in love with marine biology and I was hoping that there would be a path for me to like get there Mm. somehow coming from Montana. That's, it's kind of a weird dream to have, especially from like (laughs) town. It's not really what you would think of, but I kind of, at that point, After I had done my internship at Duke, I was like really set on finding something in marine bio. Mm -hmm. And so all of the places that I applied to were doing something in marine biology and some kind of component with genetics. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I had a similar thing. I had gone snorkeling once in like junior high and I'm like, I need to be a marine biologist. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I live in Miles City, Montana, but I got to figure something out. We're going to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, I kind of got off track with freshwater fisheries, but it's close enough for me. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. It's still aquatic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For your gap year, is that when you did the McNair Scholars Program? So no, that's actually an undergraduate program. They take sophomores um, and juniors. And basically they recruit people who are either low income first generation or minority students. And so it's basically, again, just to help advance diversity yeah. in science. And so I did that from my sophomore year until my senior year. I guess awesome. my second senior year, I took five years. Yeah, <laughs> But it was a really cool program. They not only taught you about science career paths and how to get into grad school, 
but they're also like, have you heard of financial planning? And do you know what your credit score is? And I was like, LOL, no. (laughs) So it was a combination of helping me just like become an adult, um, Mm -hmm. but also learn what it takes to get into grad school. And they did a lot of GRE prep, which is, I I don't know if you had to take the GRE, but like exam to get into any grad school. But it's cool because a lot of schools are moving past that now. Mm -hmm. I know OSU, our department has waived GRE scores just because it's not a very good representation of how you are as a student and a scientist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I was looking at your CV and you did do two research projects with the McNair's program, correct? Do you want to talk about those? Yeah, this is part of that ping-ponging around. Yeah. So through the McNair program, they, they try to push really hard to partner you with a faculty mentor and you do research with them because now that I know and, and they know uh, research is a really big component in your chances of getting into graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I had had this class with this really cool professor at o- our MSU. His name's David Willey. And his class actually made me change my major initially from anthropology to biology. Mm-hmm. And he was a bird guy. So he studies spotted owls in the Four Corners region of the U.S., And I went to him and I asked if he would take me on and he said yes. And my work, he had collected all of this data and my work was to find correlation between the owl's breeding season and what they were eating during different times within their breeding season. So they have kind of an interesting life cycle where you'll have a mating pair that stays together until one of them dies. And they have this like overall region and they'll split off during the non-breeding season and then come together during the breeding season. And there's, there, there's different times that they go hunting because um, the female will stay with the eggs most of the time. So it was really cool. I think that my stats were pretty low bar at the time because <laughs> I was a sophomore and I didn't really know what I was doing, but yeah. I think it was a great intro and in how to set up a project with that kind of data. Mm-hmm. And Dave was just a great advocate for me the entire time. And he was like a really big mental health proponent too, which I loved. Yeah. And so he was a great mentor and he was like, Hey, if you don't love owls, don't, don't stick with owls. You don't have to stick with me just because I was your first project. And so I took his advice and I was like, still hoping I could get into marine biology. Uh And I, I was doing this liberal arts degree at the same time. And I found this other professor at OSU called Dr. Sarah Waller, uh, And she did research on pack animal communications. And so it was cool because she worked not only in Yellowstone with like wolves and coyotes, Mm -hmm. um, but she also worked occasionally in LA and would go and record dolphins. Oh, awesome. So my hope was I was going to go record some dolphins. Yeah. (laughs) It never actually happened. I ended up only participating in her wolf vocalization process or project, but it was, it was really cool. We got to go to Yellowstone and we... Our, our claim to fame slash brag was that we had as much access as National Geographic, which meant we could go like 30 feet off the trail. Yeah. And we would set up these recording units and try to record foxes or I guess foxes, wolves and coyotes howling, mm-hmm. um, but primarily like looking for wolves. I always did. It was in during the dead of winter, though, because it was like right before their breeding season when they're really active. Mm hmm. So it's really cold. And I would always go on the days where we would just get unlucky and have to be out there for like eight hours. Yeah. And everybody else is like, no, it only takes a couple hours. You'll be out here for two hours and then you can go home. And I would go 
and we would be out there for four or more hours. And one day we were out there for eight. So it was a long day, but it was a good project in that I had never really done field work before. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that was, it was intense. And I liked having that experience. And from that, I kind of got to develop my own like side project. Mm -hmm. And I did the same thing, but during the summer months, and I was trying to catch fox calls in and around the Bozeman community. Just basically, there's this theory that foxes become less vocal when they're around an urban setting. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I I only got one fox call, so (laughs) couldn't do a lot with that one data point, but it was fun and I had a good time. Yeah. I mean, pretty typical experience with science, I feel like. Yeah, that's what everybody, you know, and now I know that's, that's what science is, is is a lot of trial and error. Yeah. But I really appreciated both of those professors just because it was like very much, we've given you these tools now, like go do your own thing and good luck. Yeah. (laughs) And like, of course they were there to answer any questions I had, but yeah, it was, it was just a good experience all around. Yeah, definitely. What did you do in your gap year between MSU and OSU? So I was trying to find a job and I got really lucky and I was taking a plant biotechnology class just to fill in some credits. And one of my friends in the class uh, was graduating and going into grad school. And she had been this researcher's lab tech for the past like three years. Mm -hmm. And I had just come back from my internship at the Marine lab. And I had been doing a lot of lab work there. So it just kind of fell into place where I took over her position, but it was cool because I think that that was kind of my first real intensive lab job where I went in from nine to five Mm -hmm. and did a variety of different projects slash tasks for, for Norm. It was for Dr. Norm Whedon. Mm -hmm. um, And he studies pea plants, which is really fun. Yeah. And basically for like an agricultural perspective, looking at different pathogens in these plants. And that's kind of what got me on this kick of like microbiology and and thinking about viruses and Mm -hmm. fungi and bacteria that can infect plants and animals. So it it set me up really well because then when I was talking with Becky, I could say, yeah, I've been in the field and I've had robust lab experience. Please hire me. Yeah, that seems to feed in really well to your current research. Yeah, and I liked working for Norm. He was really nice. And it was just something different. I have always loved gardening. That's one of my hobbies. I got to take care of all of the plants in the greenhouse during like the dead of cold in Montana winter. So That sounds nice. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. So now you're at OSU. Can you tell us about your research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so excited about this part. Yeah, good. (laughs) So puffy snout syndrome is really interesting. We've known about it since the 1950s. There are only, before we just published a paper, there were only nine published reports on this topic. And it was first discovered in tuna fish. And basically their their nose and their head and their eyes start getting this overproduction of tissue and it becomes gelatinous and mushy and really gross looking and swollen. And eventually their eyes, nose, and mouth become covered by this tissue and they can't see or eat and they have to be euthanized. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big problem when you're trying to have these fish for aquaculture production. Yeah. And it's been seen in a a variety of these different tuna fish species and their cousins, the mackerels. 
and it's seen so far only in aquaculture and that could be just because the fish in the wilds die so fast we don't ever find them but it was this weird phenomenon and there's been a really big push in recent years to close the life cycle of various tuna fish so that it can become more of a sustainable practice rather than going and catching these fish in the wilds. Um, a lot of these wild populations are at historical lows. And before we can do that, we need to make sure that we can house these fish in a humane way without having disease right. be prevalent. But it's also prevalent in aquariums. And obviously for the same reason, if you're in an aquarium, you don't want yeah. <laughs> a beautiful display fish looking like zombies <laughs> swimming around the tank. Yeah. So we're partnered with Monterey Bay Aquarium. And before I got to OSU, the under one of the undergrads that I worked with did this project where they imaged the tissue of affected fish. And it was really interesting because when we looked at it, we don't see bacteria, we don't see uh, fungus or protozoans, but we do see viral like particles. And so with that knowledge, what our goal was, was to deeply sequence into this tissue and see if we could find a viral genome and then use existing databases to identify the closest relative of this potential virus. Mm -hmm. And also to see, I mean, there's like a small chance that it couldn't be a virus, but just to basically further support this viral pathogen hypothesis. Yeah. So what my work is, is to look at metatranscriptomic data, which if you haven't heard of is like a very weird and confusing word. And sometimes I'm saying these words, I'm like, I didn't even know that these were going to be in my vocabulary 10 years ago. (laughs) But basically a lot of viruses don't have a DNA genome. So like all animals have DNA that codes for their genes. Rather than that, some viruses have RNA coding for their genes. So you don't take the DNA, you have to look for the RNA. Mm -hmm. And so basically I take a sample and I extract all of the RNA from it. And then we take it to our sequencing facility and they attach specific barcodes to it so we can identify it later. And then they do deep sequencing where you get what's called reads back And it's like millions and millions of reads. Mm -hmm. And that's just a read is just a short sequence of RNA. And what I do is then go through, it's it's kind of like you have thousands of jigsaw puzzles Mm -hmm. and you're trying to re-put them back together, except you don't have all of the pieces. Yeah. And some pieces fit into multiple puzzles. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. And from that, you try to find a virus, um, but you can also look at the host RNA. And for anybody listening who doesn't know like what RNA is used for in animals, basically you have your DNA that codes for RNA and then that will code for a protein, which helps do a variety of things. So I can look at the host proteins or RNA and see what it's coding for and see if there is an uptick in immune response proteins and genes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I have some preliminary data from that and it looks, the data that I'm getting back is a Bunia viral-like virus. And so we're, we're doing some more analyses to see if that holds up, but that'll probably be another uh, month or two of work. And then I'll, I'll publish hopefully in spring. 
That's so exciting. Yeah. So once you know what type of virus it is, does that help you treat fish for it or just kind of better understand how it's getting in their system? That's the goal. So if you can get the viral sequence, then you can maybe develop vaccines for it. Or Mm -hmm. at least if you know the class of virus and how a better idea of how it spreads, maybe you can do bioquality control mitigation to keep it from going from tank to tank and fish to fish. And so that's like the overall like hope is that we can help slow the spread. Cause when this ends up happening, it it typically takes out an entire population of fish. It spreads pretty rapidly. So yeah, that's what we're hoping. (laughs) That's awesome. So that work that the undergraduate did, was that part of the paper that your group just came out with recently? Yeah. And she's uh, listed as the third author on the, on the, and so I'm so excited for her. This is my first publication too. Yeah. And I'm like, you go girl, like getting <laughs> published as an undergrad is such a big deal. And hopefully she'll have more than one when she graduates. Yeah. That's amazing. So previous to that, you weren't sure if it was a virus causing it or bacteria and this was, it's likely a virus. Yeah. And there was this really awesome master's thesis done by another researcher. I think his name is Taylor Voorhees. And basically the reason we were able to do this is because he did such a good preliminary examination and I guess look into different possible causal agents and like, I'm trying to think of the name, histological, a lot of histological Mm -hmm. work. And so based on that, and what we found, he found, we knew that our next step was to do imaging and deep sequencing. Very cool. So is the sequencing part, is that roll into the bioinformatics type it of work does. that you're talking about? Yeah. I am not a computer or like any kind of tech savvy person. So when I was doing this, I was like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> but you get your sequences back and I work on what's called a command line and I tell different programs to do stuff to these sequences. Like one of the first things that you'll do is to remove those barcodes that I mentioned that you add on. You also clean your sequences. So some of them are so low quality that it's not worth looking at Mm -hmm. because there is a degree of the sequencer assigns a degree of accuracy to each portion of the DNA that it adds or RNA that it adds. So it's like, I just added, if you think back to like high school biology, the T, A, C, Gs, it's like, I just added a G, but I'm only 50% sure that that's a G. Right. Because sometimes stuff can happen, but you know, there's other sequences that have a really high probability that it's correct. And so I basically go through and I take out all of the low quality reads and do some other cleaning steps. And then I submit it through what's called an assembler program. And it just takes those smaller reads and finds overlaps with or between them to make longer sequences Mm -hmm. um, so that you can start to build or rebuild the genomes. Very cool. I really enjoy the quantitative aspect, but then there's some levels of like bioinformatics that I start to read into. I'm like, Oh man, (laughs) that's too far. It's yeah, it is very difficult. And I'm still learning so much every day. I think that my family thinks that I'm just like this coding genius and I'm just like <laughs> away ferociously, but really it's like me sitting and looking at my code for two hours just to realize that I forgot a comma. Yes. <laughs> so that's really funny. A lot of trial and error. Yeah, absolutely. 
Does most of your work then in the lab and on the computer, or do you get to go to Monterey Bay and take some samples yourself? So that was the original plan was to go to Monterey and do samples. COVID kind of derailed yeah. that. So I got to really focus on classes and analyzing my data set. Mm-hmm. But we do plan to go this spring during spring break. I'm taking, well, I guess my advisor is taking me in the undergrad. We're going down, we're going to collect more samples because we were only able to have nine samples total from our first paper. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm using for my transcriptomic data set. And so we just want to look at some more afflicted fish and also look at different tissues because we only looked at the affected face tissue, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of different immune system organs within fish that I think could have a really interesting story to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, so like their head kidney, their spleen, yeah, all that good stuff. Very cool. How many samples for this type of genomics work do you usually aim for? It, it depends as many as you can get is always like, you know, I think every researcher's dream but metatranscriptomics is such an expensive sequencing platform, mm-hmm. which is actually probably better that we only had our, our nine. But I, I think I think it just depends because I have yeah. I have friends who do 16S, which is a different kind of sequencing. It's a lot cheaper because it's a lot smaller of a segment of DNA that you work with. And they have like hundreds of samples. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I would like at least like 15 or 20. But that's like the other side of it when you have these really, because I have such deep sequences, like millions of reads to go through. I think mm-hmm. I had 40 million reads in each of my samples. That means that it takes a really long time for the programs that I'm using to run through and clean them and then to reassemble. So it'll take a week for me to assemble like one, one of my samples. Yeah. So I think really what we're getting is not more for the sequencing or metatranscriptomics at least, but more to look at maybe doing like qPCR for some different immune genes. I think we're also going to be taking blood samples to look for white blood cells, because that would also be like very, Mm -hmm. an easy way to tell that there is an infection going on. And so basically just looking for markers of viral infection without having to spend as much money as we did it um, the first time. Very cool. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention about your research that I just wouldn't have thought to ask about, or did we kind of cover it? <laughs> I think we covered a lot of it, but I do want to say just like as a virus person, there's so many viruses that don't do bad things. We hear mm-hmm. about the ones, like especially now during COVID right. that cause disease. And I'm going to get the statistic wrong. So I'm not going to say the actual statistic, but there is yeah. a huge portion of the human DNA that is retroviral elements. So you know, somewhere in our past evolutionary history, there was viruses that were retroviral, integrated themselves into our DNA. And that's how we got a lot of diversity and genetic changes mm-hmm. that make us us. There's a ton of plant viruses that help protect plant pa- or plants from other pathogens. I mean, we have bacteriophages in our guts that help keep the bacteria in our gut under yeah. control. So viruses get a bad rap, but there's so many good viruses out there. <laughs> that is really interesting and good to know. Cause that was another thing. I just assumed that like viruses just lead to disease and bad things. So and when we study the ones that lead to disease, because I mean, 
that's important for human health and animal yeah. health, but they're also really like quote unquote sexy and interesting um, <laughs> compared to like the ones that just chill and do nothing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I noticed that you are also working on an internship or perhaps already finished that with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Can you talk about what yes. you're doing there? Yes, I'm hoping to continue it. It's to, it kind of goes along with my Puffy Snout project. I am doing a cell culture internship with Melissa White at ODFW, and she's just teaching me how to grow cells in culture, how to uh, infect them with different viruses and what that looks like in the cell line. So Mm -hmm. basically different viruses will disrupt the cells and, and make it look in different ways. And the hope with this is that we can develop our own cell line of Pacific mackerel or another kind of marine fish. Most cell lines, well, pretty much all cell lines are freshwater and it's really hard to find a marine fish cell line. So we wanted to develop our own and then look for what's called the cytopathic effect, basically damaging of those cells by taking a homogenate of tissue from an affected mackerel or tuna from puffy snout Mm -hmm. and infect um, those cells and hopefully try to isolate a virus. So what metatranscript tells us, metatranscriptomic tells us is that there is a virus there, Uh but just because that virus is there, it doesn't necessarily mean that that virus is causing the disease. Right. Because like I said, there's a lot of viruses that just live in and on us and aren't causing disease. Yeah. And so to prove that the virus that we are seeing is causing puffy snout, we need to be able to somehow isolate it. I mean, there's other ways to go about proving that this is a, is the causal agent, Mm -hmm. but if we could do this, this would be like the gold standard. Yeah. It's really hard to develop your own cell line, unfortunately. And sometimes you can inoculate your cells. And even though it is a pathogen, it just isn't the right cell line Mm -hmm. and it won't have an effect, but that's what I'm doing there. And it's been a really fun and interesting project learning about, I'm working mostly with salmon cell lines and pathogens. And so getting to see more of like the problems that arise in Pacific Northwest fisheries um, has been really cool. That is really interesting. And I got to go to a salmon spawn a few, I guess it was like a month ago now or a month or two. And I had never been to a spawn before and it was a lot of fun. Everybody was so nice. And I was just there with my cups trying to collect samples, (laughs) got splashed by all kinds of goop. It was great. That's awesome. It's funny because everybody was like picking up these salmon, making it look, it was coho salmon um, or no, it was sorry, Chinook salmon. Whoops. (laughs) They're like picking them up and throwing them like it was nothing. And Melissa's like, do you want to try? Like after I did a dissection, she's like, do you want to try like moving it? Like Uh seeing how it feels like, oh yeah, I got this. But I picked it up and I was like, they're so slippery. slippery. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I hold it? And everyone's watching me fumble with this like giant slimy fish. And I like finally get it on the pile and it just like slides off and falls on the ground. I was like, I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah. I did an internship at a hatchery and I was like, I'm going to get better at fish handling, but they're so (laughs) slimy and flop all around. I was like, no, I'm so bad at it. (laughs) Everybody had like, gloves on and I didn't have gloves and they're like, careful, don't cut yourself. So then I was like worried about slicing my finger and getting fish goop in it, (sighs) but it was, it was fun. (laughs) 
Sounds like an experience. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And then I also, I'm kind of jumping around now too, but I want to make sure I talked about this. Uh, You mentioned in your intro that you're heading up this microbiology summer camp. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Oh, I'm glad that I get to talk about this. So I think you kind of covered it and I mentioned in the beginning, I really like science outreach and I like making science accessible to a lot of different people. I think when I started, well, I know when I started undergrad, I had no idea what graduate school was, that it existed, that that's something that you had to do to become a professional scientist. I also didn't really know what microbiology was. We had had it a little bit in school, but that wasn't really what our high school focused on. And I don't think a lot of high schools focus on micro to be fair. (laughs) And so it's kind of been a pipe dream of mine since I started. And Becky and I had been talking about it for, I mean, probably the past three years, just like passively, like we should do a microbiology camp, but it just so happens that she was recently awarded a distinguished professor award called the Perno. Oh, I think it's called the Perno distinguished professor award. Mm-hmm. And she gets uh, funds for a few years that she can do whatever she wants with some researchers use it to fund different projects in their lab or to fund a student. Mm-hmm. The person who had it last did a lot of like science and art projects, which was mm-hmm. cool. But what Becky decided to do was to do a microbiology camp since we had been talking about it and she let me head it up. And what we are hoping for is to have 15 to 20 students who are from underserved or underrepresented backgrounds in science and to just have a really fun week-long camp where they're introduced to different aspects of microbiology. We're obviously going to show them aquatic microbiology because that's what our lab does, but also like food science and health. Yeah and also human health and take them on different field trips that correspond to that day's theme Mm -hmm. so that they can see different careers in the microbiology field. Yeah. And I think that one of the really things that I'm proud of about our camp is that we are trying to, and I think are going to be very successful because we just got some funding, provide stipends for the students who are coming from these underserved and underrepresented backgrounds, but also basically an additional like scholarship or award where we're covering Oregon's minimum wage for six hours each day. So if those students are doing this camp, but therefore not able to do their work, or they usually have a sibling that they watch and they have to find like childcare, they are still getting paid to come to this camp. They're not that's losing amazing. wages. So that's, I'm really excited for it. Yeah, that is incredible. Really fun stuff planned. I think we're going to try to do kombucha tasting and making. Nice. We're going to go to the Oregon Coast Aquarium in Newport. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of fun stuff. That is so exciting. I cannot emphasize how important like getting high school students exposed to science is because that's where I got to volunteer with a biologist at a BLM when I was a it was like between my junior and senior years. And I was like, fish are amazing. And I've just been like set on this path ever since. So it's like, oh, just everyone could have this experience where they could like experience all these different careers. So valuable. Yes. And so much of it is just knowing what's out there and what you can do. Cause I think honestly, when I thought of microbiology, I thought of like the stingy, you know, old dude in a lab pipetting a bunch of like random (laughs) liquids, but there's so much more than that. Yeah. 
Wow, that's so awesome. So what outside of science and conservation do you do for fun? Like what hobbies and interests do you have? I I guess I really like to stay active. I think I mentioned earlier, I like to garden. Mm-hmm. I also am, I got into scuba diving pretty hard when I got into nice. Oregon because I wasn't sure if I was going to have to go out into the field with Becky. So I wanted to get my scientific diving certification. I ended up deciding not to do that, but I got a ton of other certifications just for fun. And I love being underwater. I, I was never a swimmer. I could never swim. I still can't really swim, but I'm really good at sinking, which is what you need to dive. (laughs) I still play hockey. There is a league pretty close to us, like 45 minutes away that Mm -hmm. I go to. And then other than that, I just hang out with my cats and crochet. That's awesome. (laughs) Is there anything else that you can think of that you'd like to cover before we head into our last few questions? No, I think that that's, that's pretty much it. Awesome. I've been really enjoying it. So I was like, is there anything else? I don't want to miss anything. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. Okay. This is what we, we call it the easy part of the interview for the last five. I don't totally agree. I think it's probably the hardest questions (laughs) we have just because they're, they're interesting, but so what we call the tough part of the interview is over, but you can decide on that. (laughs) The first one is what is your favorite fish? I was thinking so long about this, right? (laughs) It's really hard. I think so. I've always loved like the Salmonid family because that's where so much research is being done. Mm -hmm. I think rainbow trout are such beautiful fish, but they're also really interesting because they can be freshwater, but they can also be anadromous where they Mm -hmm. travel out to sea for a portion of their life. So I think that that would be my answer. I also am in the aquarium hobby where I have fish. You can kind of see an aquarium in the background. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And I have this killifish that I freaking love. His <laughs> name is Sharky. So I'm going to have to go with my like other favorite fish is killifish. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Ooh, I should have thought about this one. I, I remember <laughs> looking at it. I would say just all of the times that I've gotten to have lab gatherings our lab is pretty big. And so it's not often that we all get together. Mm-hmm. And I love our lab because everybody's just very supportive and we're all into like boss woman power and energy. Yeah. I mean, it's got a lot of good scientists, so it's, it's nice to get together with my friends. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Our third question is what is your dream job and location? I'm not a fan of the cold. So it's like far south as I can get. Yeah. <laughs> I keep on like edging towards California, but uh-huh. I, I don't think I could ever afford to live in California. So I think my dream job would be doing some kind of aquarium work in the California area. Mm-hmm. Like if I could get to Monterey and work for them, that would be cool. There's also this other job that I think is like kind of funny, but also just sounds so fun. But because there's a lot of people who do aquarium hobby in California, you can go and be like a fish vet uh-huh. and perform surgery on like <laughs> these little tiny fish and diagnose them. So I think that that would be another fun job to have. That's awesome. I've never heard of that, but that was very yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our fourth question is if money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I think that, ooh, this is such a good question. I would want to do metagenomic and metatranscriptomic work on just like a bunch of different fish species. Unless a fish is like a really important aquaculture species or like um, culturally important, Mm -hmm. we don't 
really do any kind of research on them. So there's a lot of fish that we kind of just ignore. Mm -hmm. And I think doing a viral discovery project of just teleosts in general, in, in the marine realm especially, would be really cool. It would be a really expensive thing to do. So that's why I'd say if I had as much money as I wanted, I would do viral discovery in fishes. Yeah. That sounds so cool. Okay. Our final question is if there's one pointer principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I'm going to do one kind of cheesy one. And then one science related one. Sounds good. One is the only limitations you have are those that you set for yourself. There are so many times that I told myself I couldn't do something, so I didn't pursue it. Mm-hmm. But then when I took my own limitation out of my head, I was able to be really successful at it. Like I've always like, I'm bad at computers, but I'm doing like kind of coding now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't want to work with viruses because I thought it was going to be too hard. And now I'm doing viruses and I love them. Yeah. And that kind of leads to my second point, which we talked about a little bit, is that not all viruses are bad. Some viruses are good. <laughs> Those are great. <laughs> well, Thanks again, Savannah, for coming on the podcast today. It was really fun catching up and hearing about all of your work. People want to get a hold of you or find more information about your work. How can they do that? So they can, I think the easiest way I'm on Twitter, but I also have an email account associated with Oregon State. And I think that that would be the best way to get a hold of me. It's, I think, online on our lab webpage, but I can also like give it to you. I don't, know if I should say it on the podcast. Cause I don't think people, <laughs> <laughs> I can, I'll put it in the show link and then people can go through those and click cool. on it pretty easy. Yeah. I was like, I don't think people will like be able to listen close enough to write it down. Yeah. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheries pod, or you can send us an email to feedback at the fisheries podcast.com. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to the 154th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, the only limitations you have are the ones you set for yourself, and not all viruses are bad.